Let's get into our study this morning. I'm excited for this. Asha, Ash said she was excited for this, so hopefully I don't blow it. But this morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 20. And it's another one of those things where I couldn't take the whole thing at once. I felt it needed to be divided up today and then next week into another multiple division. And I think you'll see why. But we're going to try and cover the first 10 verses this morning together. Uh, and the title of the message is the first resurrection. The first resurrection. We'll talk more about that, that when we get there in the scripture. Remember, Revelation Review, Apostle John on the island of Patmos, Jesus revealed to him, brings him up to heaven, brings him to the future, shows him these things, shows him the letter to seven churches or gives him the letters to the seven churches. Talks about the end of the world as we know it, the great tribulation uh, where most of the earth, many cities are destroyed, people are killed. We'll look at that later. Uh, everything is upended from oceans to climate to everything. That there's a judgment on the nations by God that they might repent, but they won't. And many of them don't. And many of them die. And why? Well, it's because they follow Satan and they willingly follow him during this time. Uh, but again, remember that God always wants people to give people a chance. He's always giving us more chances and he's always giving people more chances. And we're going to see today, he gives them a thousand years of another chance to follow him. And we'll see what happens at the end of that thousand years. But Revelation is the end revealed, the end of our time as we know it revealed. It's the church and the church age revealed and the church you might even go to revealed. It's heaven revealed. We get a picture of heaven, like an, an, uh, all access pass really kind of to heaven that we haven't had before. It's more importantly, is Jesus revealed. We don't care so much about the place as the person who's in the place because anywhere Jesus is, is going to be heaven, right? I wouldn't want to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there. It's the future revealed, and we always think of the future, but it's also the future future revealed. As we're going to see, we're looking at the seven years of tribulation, but it's also the future beyond that revealed. That There's more to earth after the seven years of tribulation, and then there's more to come for us after that as well. You know, Chuck Missler says that the Bible says more about the end times than any other time in history, and I find it interesting and curious that we skip over that. The Bible says so much about the end times. Yes, it talks about creation, talks about the flood, talks about the time that Jesus was on the earth, right? Talks about the time of the, the early church. But when it speaks about a time period in history and in detail, it speaks about the end times more than any other time in history. That's our time, right before the tribulation. That's the tribulation and right after. Previously, we saw the world in allegiance to a world leader, member of the Antichrist. He demanded a mark that they must worship him, if you remember with that contrast between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, we saw many judgments, plagues, disasters, war, famine, and death, unlike the world has ever seen. And all these things came from heaven, that heaven ordained them. They weren't natural disasters because somebody drilled too deep in the earth. It was a disaster because heaven said, enough is enough, time for these judgments to come. We saw these martyrs, these tribulation saints, these people that come to faith after the rapture, during the tribulation, who give up their lives for the Lord. And I don't know that they really have much choice during this time. It's either you follow the Antichrist, or you don't. And you're killed. We see there's this Babylon, world Babylon, uh, sexually and spiritually and financially corrupt world system. 
uh, both in the actual economy, but also in the spirit that prevails in the time. But then we saw that that system that has existed in some form throughout all of history and comes to full fruition then is destroyed by God, again, from heaven, that all of heaven rejoices over this. And when this happens, there's a call to the marriage of the bride. And we remember that when God destroys something, it's always to put something better in its place. And we're going to see something of that better being put into place this morning. We saw the rider on the white horse. And again, this isn't the rider from the first four horses. This was Jesus, right? Uh, he had an army of saints behind him. And we found it interesting that they, they did not have any weapons with them, that he is the only one who had a weapon. And it occurred to me this week that in this life, we take up the full armor of God. We, his army, bear our weapons now in this life, not in the age to come. We put on the armor now, the full armor now. But in that next life, when we come back to defeat with Jesus, there's no weapon needed because he's the only weapon. But remember, we looked at his robe dipped in blood, his name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, a name that only he knew as well. But he destroys that ar the armies of the world and Satan and the Antichrist and the beast with one blow. I think it's hilarious. I Because basically he just shows up and they're destroyed. It's not this epic fight scene like you'd find in the third act of a movie or Lord of the Rings. It's over in a split second. And the Antichrist and the false prophet, these two men who are possessed by Satan, I believe, um, they're thrown into the lake of fire. They're thrown into that final place of judgment. They don't even get the chances we're going to see next week or next time to go into the great white throne judgment. <laughs> They've made up their mind. Their judgment is done. They're the first ones into the lake of fire. And again, just a few things before we actually dig into the meat of the scripture. Um, I'm not going to read Daniel chapter 12, but I encourage you, go read Daniel chapter 12. It'll only take a couple minutes, but I've got a lot to cover and I don't want to do it right this moment. But read Daniel chapter 12. And it says a lot of interesting things that go along with what we've been looking at recently and looking at in Revelation. And again, talking about the end times, it says more than, than uh, the Bible says a lot about these times. But I wanted to point out that uh, to Daniel, and there's so many good, oh man, I just want to turn there and just take two hours to study this morning. But the angel says, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And I just wanted to point out that if I hadn't pointed out before, that we are in this time. That throughout all of history, when could people go all around the world? To and fro. Hop on a plane. You, you know, it, it takes money. But if you wanted to go anywhere in the world right now, you could be there within a few hours and hop on a plane. People do it for business. People do it for work. You guys are in New Jersey and Florida. And we're in Montana. And somehow we're all together. Knowledge shall increase. The things that we know, even if you look at the world in the way... The media and the governments are losing control of their societies to some degree is because knowledge is increasing. We're realizing you guys are more corrupt than we even knew before. And the free and they don't like the spread of that free knowledge. But if we also look at Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty through twenty seven, and I will turn there because I think it's important to what we're gonna look at today. Daniel nine. Nine. I don't think there's 29 chapters in Daniel. <laughs> All right, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 27. And don't worry if you can't turn there in time. It says, while I was speaking and praying, uh, I just want to make sure this is right and I didn't copy over this section from before. 
Yeah, it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of God, indeed, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel, whom I had seen in the vision of the beginning, uh, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. He informed me and talked with me and said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications that the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. I love that that's the first message from God to Daniel. Daniel, you're greatly beloved. I, you've been praying about things, but I just want you to know that you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and upon your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, so this day and time when the command to rebuild Jerusalem goes forth, until the prince Messiah will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, so it'll be 69 weeks. It shall be built again with plaza and moat and even in any times of trouble. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops and the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall come with a flood. And until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall make firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the uh, decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Woo, that's a lot. But I bring that up because this is the 70 weeks so-called of Daniel. And this isn't a year and a couple of months, 70 weeks. These weeks are weeks of years, as I'm sure you've heard before, where a week is what, seven days? So a week of years is seven years. So basically, uh, from the time of Jerusalem to the, uh, the time to rebuild Jerusalem, the decree is given and there's a king that makes that decree, to the time of the triumphal entry is uh, 69 weeks of years. Um, and there's seven that's left unfulfilled. And the, the seven that's left unfulfilled is shown here that there is someone who comes on the scene in this last week, makes a covenant with Israel, right? to redo worship, to start up the temple again. And that's the beginning of the seventh year. So the rapture happens, and I believe we talked about this a little bit. The seventh week happens of the tribulation. And halfway through that tribulation, he breaks the covenant, it says. And I bring that up uh, because we're going to look at certain times in history, right? We're going to see this thousand-year reign of Christ and know that it's a fulfillment of these 70 weeks coming to an end for when the Messiah comes back. But before that, we've got that false Messiah who breaks it. But not to get too much into Daniel, that's a whole other study on its own. Um, and to be honest, I wouldn't be prepared to, to talk about that completely. But these chunks of scripture that we're going to look at today in Revelation 20 are very short and compared to the time of existence. So it talks about the thousand years, and it's only a couple of sentences, right? So there's that temptation there to kind of skip over it because it's briefly written. But I, I don't think we should today. I think we need to slow down and look at it a little bit because they say a lot succinctly. It's few words about a long time, but it says things succinctly. It says things descriptively. And if we just sit there for a second and consider it, I think there's a bunch we can glean from it and we'll be better off for it. But on the flip side of that, we also need to be careful not to say dogmatically what the Bible doesn't elaborate on, right? Chuck Smith used to always say, where the Bible is silent, I will be silent too. So there's a lot of things that we can glean from the Bible that we can understand. The Bible teaches, the Bible makes clear about doctrine. 
And there's certain things about certain scriptures and Genesis and Jude, you read, you go, all right, this is interesting to think about, but I really can't put too much more into it because the Bible only says these couple things about it. So I can only build a loose framework based on what the Bible says, and I have to let my understanding stop there. And with that, I think we tend to think of the end times as the literal end of the world, which it is. When, the end, when we talk about the end times, we talk about revelation, we talk about the rapture, we talk about tribulation, we think, oh, the world's end, this is it. You know, there's only seven more years. But it's not completely. It's only the end of our way of doing things. It's only the end of this world system that we looked at, Babylon. It's only the end of Satan's rule on earth. Because there's still a thousand years coming for this earth, right? You and I don't need so much to worry about as we'll see. We're going to be raptured. We'll be in heaven. We're going to come back at the second resurrection. But today we're going to look at the first resurrection and those thousand years that happened after the seven years of tribulation. So if you're going to think about it, from today forward, there's at least a thousand and seven years left for this earth and this creation. That doesn't mean that we should sit back and be idle because those seven years are huge and awful as, we'll, as we've seen and we'll see a little bit more today. And those thousand years, most people aren't going to make it to those thousand years. So it's not like it's a thousand years and we should, you know, we're fine. We got plenty of time. We don't. The Lord can come back at any moment and those seven years are going to be awful. But we need to remember that there's a little bit more to the story before heaven happens, so to speak. Before eternity future comes to be, there's still a little bit more to the story of earth, the story of redemption, and the story of Christ's work on earth and with people. Because this is really, the letters to the churches, seven years of tribulation, is really just the beginning. Revelation is the story of the end, but the end also has a new beginning in it before the new beginning. And as believers... The last, these last few chapters, in a sense, I think are somehow perhaps the most important for us. And at least they should be the most exciting. I get excited about all the judgments and all these other things that happen. And maybe that's just my flesh. And yeah, you know, I like, I like those things. I like war. I like the, you know, the, the thinking about the future and the fact that God has spent 20 chapters talking to us about it, right? So it's obviously God wants to make these a big focus, but at the same time, we should be excited about Jesus' rule and his reign and what's coming. In some sense, I, I kind of laugh when people write, you know, Jesus in on the voting block, right? Like, that's not going to happen until after the tribulation. So do your best to vote now to someone who's going to bring righteousness about. I get wanting Jesus to be king, but really, you don't want to be around. I don't want to be a tribulation saint. I don't want to be one who's in the thousand-year kingdom. As cool as it's going to be, I want to go to heaven. I want to skip over this whole time. And so with that, Lord, we do ask that, God, you would guide us and lead us and show us, God, the wonders of your works, past, present, and future, that, God, how you're coming back, let us lay hold firm faith in that, that, God, whatever trial comes our way, God, we would know, hey, you're coming back, you're our king, this world doesn't matter, it's all going to burn anyway, like Peter said, so let us live for you. But, God, while we're here, let us be good citizens, let us be good parents, good workers, good friends, but most of all, uh, good servants of you our coming King. We love you, God. We ask your blessing in all your saints all over the world today. In Jesus' name, um, bring many to you. Amen. Amen. So let's look at the first three verses of Revelation chapter 20 right now. As I take a sip from my adult sippy cup of lemon juice. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, John says, having the key to the bottomless pit. And a great chain in his hand. It almost sounds like we're, wait, did we skip back a few chapters there? He seized the dragon, 
that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a little while. And we'll stop there. That again, we're seeing John's perspective here. Again, he's got, you know, maybe he's in heaven, he's still seeing earth, but I believe in some sense he's, he's on this earth and he's seeing what's going on. And he's kind of got his little guide there and, you know, maybe he's in a little bubble and he gets to see what's going on. You know, in the old battles, uh, in the old days, the armies would get together and fight in a valley or something and their commanders would get up on the mountainside so they could get a view of what's going on. And I kind of feel like John's kind of got that commander view there. But an angel in heaven is given the key to the bottomless pit. And if you remember uh, a few chapters ago, and uh, I thought I wrote it down, uh, Revelation, somewhere a few chapters ago, uh, Revelation 9, was it? Uh, the star was fallen from heaven and given a key to the bottomless pit. And we remember that that pit opened at that time. That smoke of a great furnace billowed out. I picture like this overflowing, billowing smoke. Have you ever seen something burning out of control? A diesel engine that's gone off the rails or a volcano. Uh, this, this great furnace of smoke billowing out. And we saw that the sun and the air were darkened during that time. Uh, you know, I don't how many, care how many carbon credits the World Economic Forum gives you. Uh, it's going to be ruined when this happens. Uh, but we saw these locusts come out. These spiritual beings. Uh, and they came out with one purpose. To harm those who did not have the seal of God. So there are those who are tribulation saints during the time that the world is harming. And these locusts come out and harm everyone else. You remember that they tormented these people. They could not kill them. Uh, that during this time, you know, there's also a time where death fleed from the people. Maybe these times are related, but they kill and torment. They don't kill, but they torment to the point of death for five months. Uh, and we saw that in a sense, Satan was given authority to open this pit and let them out at this time. But this time God's angel is given authority to this pit, that the key is in God's hand still that although the, the Satan opened that key to the bottom, he must've dropped it. <laughs> And God picked it up and gave it to this angel in a sense. And this angel comes not only with a key, but with chains. I think that's interesting. Was there, is there a foundry in heaven where they're making chains for this day? Is there the clank of these chains? And all heaven's like, yeah, we can't wait for that day. We whistle while we work, while we make these chains. I don't know. But he's got the key in the chains and he comes down and he binds up Satan. So remember... Satan goes throughout all of history claiming to be this great being. And yeah, God did make him great in certain ways, but he's not always cracked up to be. And when God says it and God wills it and God wants it at that right time, he's got no chance and no choice but to be locked up, bound up. Again, that ultimate episode of your favorite cop show with the criminal or your favorite end of the season where the, the bad guy is hauled off and beaten, right? But he's bound and he's thrown into that pit. So that pit is empty now. It's not this party where Satan's in charge, but it's this holding tank, this prison cell, this abuso, this bottomless pit that was opened up in the earth. Satan gets thrown into that pit. And he's also got a seal put on himself, right? Uh, to not be able to go out and, and do these things. And I think about, I don't know if you remember, and maybe, I don't know if it was the first one in the 70s or the one in the 80s, but that Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, maybe you, uh, you guys remember, but there was these three guys from his old planet who were bent on using their powers on Earth. And they had, they, had, they had been locked up for their crimes 
in something called the Phantom Zone. And they floated through space in this little, like, dimensional prison. And then I think there's, like, a nuclear missile or Earth sends something out and it hits it and it breaks it and they get free and they try and take over Earth. And Superman's got to fight them. But I think about that because it's like there's the, there are these beings that have all this power that have been locked up in this zone. So they're not done away with. Satan's not done away with, destroyed, obliterated. He's just put in jail for this thousand-year time period. And it reminds me of Revelation 9, uh, talking about the four angels bound who are set aside for all history. That right now, there's four angels bound in different parts of the earth in little prisons somewhere. And I don't want to make it too physical where it's like you could go open up a rock and find an angel in there like, hey, let me out. I don't think it works that way. I think it's a spiritual place with a physical connection and there's some binding there. But spiritually, that there's angels tied up ready for this season. And in the same sense, Satan is going to be bound up for this season for another purpose. That God is, somehow, God isn't done with Satan yet for this thousand-year reign. So he says, okay, I'm going to lock him up, but I'm going to set him aside still for my purpose somehow in the future. And again, the Bible doesn't say much about these things, just these few words in these few places, so we can't be too... Uh, practical or dogmatic about it other than what the Bible says, the Bible says. And so that's what we know. And I don't think that I don't struggle with that. Other people might struggle with that, but we have to realize that the Bible want God wants us to read revelation. And there's some tough, weird things to our perspective in revelation, things that we can't see or explain necessarily, but they are totally real and totally a part of our reality and a part of creation. That God made this abuso, that this abuso existed, and it was set apart for the end time, and it's set apart to, to chain Satan in, right? So they set a seal upon him that he would not be able to deceive the nations for the thousand years. And remember, we see in the Bible, God seals his people. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. He seals up certain knowledge, like in Daniel, until the end times, until it's time for them to be understood. It's just impossible for us to understand it. And, uh, you know, God seals Satan for this time as well. You know, I got a card from a friend at work and she's very crafty and she actually talk and everything, but she has her own little seal, her own little wax and she pushes in it and it's got her initials, I think on it. And it's just really cool. She puts it on her letters and it's artsy and crafty and it's, that's her seal. In the old days you would seal things, you know, to not, to not open it. You get a jar of mayonnaise from the store, you open up the top. If that seal's not on there, Nobody's making tuna with that because it's been contaminated, right? And God seals Satan for this end time. And I think we might struggle with that. Because God could just wipe Satan out. He just showed up and the whole armies were defeated. Why in our minds would he stop short at this? It was very easy for him to just get rid of Satan. Obviously, he just sent an angel, one of his, you know, you know, for, for a pejorative term. He sent one of his little minions down there to grab uh, Satan and lock him up. So it wasn't that hard. It's like God just put Satan in the basement for a few years. Why? Why not just get rid of him? Why let him out in a thousand years? Why do this, God? Well, I think sometimes we need to just sit back and read and realize that God's not going to change. This is the future. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Just because we don't understand and we complain doesn't mean that God's plan is going to change any one bit. But somehow, this is God's salvation plan. That somehow God is using Satan, still has a plan and a purpose for him, even despite all he is, to give everyone a choice. And I'm sure there's more than that than this. My little pea brain can't pick out more than that at this point. But from the understanding that I'm given, 
God doesn't want us to be robots. God wants everyone, even in the, after the thousand-year period of time, to have a choice between righteousness and wickedness, even after they've seen a thousand years of righteousness. Because God will not force us to worship him like we talked about last time. He always gives us a choice. Even as believers, even indwelt with the Holy Spirit, possessed, so to speak, by the Spirit of God, we still don't have to obey him. And we know that because when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we sense that. He doesn't make us, we sense him grieved and it should bring us to repentance. But Satan and the world, dictators, tyrants, man-kings, don't do that. They say, obey me or die. Do what I say or you're fired. But God doesn't do that. And so God says, Satan must be set free for a little while. And I like that word, little while. It's micros season. It's a short little time. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the exact time here. It doesn't say Satan's freed for a day, an hour, a minute. He tells us a thousand years, but he doesn't tell us how long Satan's going to be free. He just says a micro season. You know, a season on earth, three months. You know, sometimes you get those little times like, forgive me if it's a wrong term, but Indian summer where all of a sudden it gets cold for the fall and then it gets hot again and you get this micro season and then it goes back into fall and then you start getting your coat and everything out and know that it's finally over. But you know that you've got this little ray of hope coming of this micro season of summer left. Because I think that the focus here God wants us to look at really is the thousand years. And not that this isn't a part of it, but we shouldn't be so concerned with how long Satan is loose for, but we should be focused on the thousand years of Jesus, at least compared to history. Because the thousand years, as the Bible says, and it's not just what I think, the Bible says it, is the thousand years. And it's the exact time. David Guzik in his commentary says, we should take a number literally in the Bible unless there is clear reason or evidence to do otherwise. God says seven years. God says 70 weeks of years. The Halfway through that last week of years, three and a half years in, the tribulation breaks, the thousand years. And much like with creation, there's no reason in the Bible to believe it says whatever, other than what it says it says. The creation says seven days. Exodus, when God gave the Ten Commandments, said seven literal days. Jesus talks about it literal days. We should take it as literal days. Only since evolution has been believed have Christians gone back and tried to finagle it and make no sense out of it. So when the Bible says something, when Jesus says something, I have no choice really to say, well, God says that. Why do I need to try and make it fit what some dead guy says with no evidence says? And even if they come up with evidence, they're looking at it the wrong way. And so Psalm, you might bring up Psalm 94, where it says a thousand years in his sight is as but yesterday. And 2 Peter 3, where he says a, thou, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day in your sight, Lord. Well, Peter and the psalmist aren't telling us, now every time you see a day, interpret it as not a day. Interpret it as an eon, as millions of years. It's just saying that God is not beholden to time. It says that God can view a day and God can view a thousand years and there's no skin off his back. That God sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, he can turn around time, he can look at it, he can step in it, he can come at it. He knows what's going to happen because he's the maker of it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. No other. 
I am God and there is none like me, God says. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things that are not yet done. These, are, these things we're looking at are not yet done, but they are done in God's, God's eyes. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Nothing is going to stop God from these things from happening. They are written, they have happened future tense for us, but to God, he already knows it. He already knows it. He's already decreed it and it will come to pass no matter what we do. But let's go on, those first verses 4 through 6. John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the authority to judge was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. I kind of like this little like side note. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There's a lot to unpack there, I believe. But this time, you know, John's seen other thrones in heaven around the throne. God's throne in heaven, there were the elders' thrones. Now we see more thrones, and this time these three thrones are not in heaven. They are on earth. And he also says, I see the souls of those who are martyred. We remember the tribulation saints in Revelation 7, they were there, they were, uh, they were given white robes, and they said, Lord, when's our time going to be done? When are you going to avenge us? Well, now that time has come. These saints, these souls, um, will be resurrected. These souls will be given their new bodies, their, their uh, eternal bodies. Because remember, faith in Jesus during the tribulation, like we said, will, only certainly, will almost certainly require their own death. Now our Christian faith only requires us to put to death our own flesh, that we have to say no to things and yes to righteousness, right? But in that period of time, the world's going to basically do it for them. They don't even want them living. There's not going to be churches. There might be little underground little packets, but as soon as they're found, they're going to be killed. And the world is going to put it to death for them. But I like that it says, and for the word of God, that they're, they're put to death here um, for their witness of Jesus, for the fact that they are like Jesus on earth. They speak of Jesus. They tell of Jesus. Their life itself is a witness that Jesus is real, that this Antichrist isn't what he says he is. And for the word of God. It's a reminder that their deaths weren't just the result of the sinful actions of others. It wasn't just because the world hated them that they died for some causeless purpose or some causeless person but that their deaths had real meaning because they fulfilled God's word. That God set apart them for this time to fulfill his word in this time, and that's ultimately why they died, because God ordained it. Because it was God's purpose and plan for their lives that they would come to faith in this time, that those who would come to I'm sure he gave them time beforehand, but the fact that they waited now puts them in this bracket. And there was a video I was watching the other day, and I saw a comment under it from a veteran and how he was, in a sense, ashamed of his service because of the people that put him there and the things that he's come to find out about certain wars and certain things. And I understand that. You know, I don't understand it from his, you know, I haven't gone through it. But I understand the thinking there. But at the same time, I replied to him. I said, you don't have to be 
ashamed of your service. You went out and did the right thing. You stepped up to what you believe is the right call, even if they tricked you, because you wanted to do the right thing. You stood up, and we honor that, and true patriots honor that and respect that, because you stood up for us. Even if we were all tricked by our government, you stood up to do the right thing on behalf of us, on them, and uh, yourself. So for that, thank you, right? That he's ashamed of his service. And I think sometimes these people might go, oh man, I, I died and I was killed without a purpose. But no, their purpose was for the Lord. In Romans 8, I won't read it for time, but it talks about who's, what shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? What shall separate us? For a tribulation, distress, persecution. And Paul says, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is that not the tribulation saints? That they were killed all day long. That they were appointed as sheep for the slaughter. That these saints, they had not worshipped the beast. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And just a side note. Can you please tell me why Christians think tattoos are a good idea? Besides the Old Testament talking about not marking or cutting yourself for the dead. If you look at tattoos and a lot of the imagery originally comes out of looking for dead and, and they're just dark imagery, right? So why do we think it's a good idea? You know, I'm going to say maybe that's between you and the Lord. For me, I, I think it's pretty clear, right? And besides that, it stretches, you know. You might get a cupcake now, as my mom used to joke, but it'll turn into a birthday cake by the time you're old because it stretches and fills out. Wedding cake. Wedding, yeah, there you go. But uh, you know what? It, it turns to, uh, they fade your body. Just, I think, you know, no offense, but I think it looks a little dirty when you have them, right? You know, things you liked when you were 17, you might not like when you're 50. You know, I, I sometimes get if like a military guy, right? Or I, I understand some of the thinking behind some of the more important ones. But people get them for a lot of very silly reasons these days. But why do Christians do it? That's a topic for another time. But I have, to, I have to say, don't you see how the world is getting so comfortable with body modification? With getting tattoos, getting marks, changing things in them, surgery to cut things off and put things on. And how easy and how little of a step it's going to be for the world to then mark themselves or change themselves or put something in themselves in allegiance to some world leader? Like, do you see how close that is? How the marks for the dead are now going to be become the mark for the one who is ultimately going to die, the ultimate death. But these martyred souls seen in heaven will be resurrected. If we remember Ezekiel 37, again, Go read it later. It's great to go back and look at these things. The Valley of Dry Bones. But God brings the prophet out there, shows him this valley of dead soldiers and says, can they breathe again? Can they live again? And they breathe and they walk and then God brings them back to life. Great picture there. But these folks are resurrected. And it's interesting, just like the, the, the false prophet and the beast go to hell before the judgment, they, they, they don't get to... They don't get to pass go, right? They don't collect $200. They go straight to jail. That these folks don't go to the judge, don't go to don't go to the great right throne judgment. In a sense, they've already received that judgment. They've already been proven to follow God. And what do they get? They go get resurrected first. And this is eternal resurrection. They're not going to die again. They had already died physically and they're brought back. And again, for time, so many great scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 20 through 35 and 42 through 49. 
But 1 Corinthians 15.35 says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Uh, the body is sown in corruption, is raised in corruption, is sown in dishonor, is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, raised in power. Uh, there is a natural body, Paul says, and there is a spiritual body. That their spiritual body was, their soul was in heaven, and they needed a physical body to continue. Just like when Jesus was resurrected, he had a new body, right? He's able to go through walls. He still ate. When he ate the fish with them, the fish didn't fall out, right? He actually ate. Uh, and just like the first man, Adam, became a living being, Corinthians says, the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. They go back to dust, right? And the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of man of dust, right? We all flesh, we all people, we all die. We all look like people. We look like our parents who look like their parents and parents, 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 all the way back to Adam. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Then when we're remade, when we get our new body, our resurrected body, it's going to be more and more like the likeness of Christ. It's going to be an eternal body that doesn't die, not made out of dust anymore, but made out of made out of whatever God makes us out of. And this isn't the first resurrection that we've seen in the Bible. We've seen the widow's sons in the Old Testament. Elisha's guy falls in Elisha's grave and he comes back to life. The healings of children in the New Testament. Lazarus died and was rose again. Those that rose when Christ died again. I love this verse in Matthew 27, 50 through 53. When Jesus comes back to life, it's like the residual shockwave hits all the graves in Jerusalem and all these saints come back to life and come out of the grave, come out of the dirt, so to speak. Who knows how long they were dead for? And they came back to life, right? Paul died. Paul was stoned and came back to life. But the difference is, is that all those people, and we sometimes think that resurrection is just Lazarus in the Bible, but if you really look, there's a lot of stories of it. They all died again. Lazarus was resurrected to die again. Paul was resurrected to die again. All these widow's sons, the man who fell in Elisha's grave, they all died again because they were resurrected back to their Adamic body, back to the body of flesh, back to the body of dirt. They were brought back to life to show that God has power over the grave, over sickness and over death. But they weren't resurrected to eternal life then. They were just physically resurrected. So for me, it's like, save it. If I die, don't pray that I get resurrected. <laughs> if I die, let me go. And now I don't blame you for praying that if you do. But these martyrs were resurrected to 1,000 years and eternal life. And I believe in some sense, this is a reward for their, their horrible price they paid. In a sense, in fact, it's a fantastic price. But the conditions that they lived for, for God and made their choice for God, God says, guys, I got something special for you. You went through seven years of literal hell on earth, and I'm going to give you a thousand years when you're in charge of literal heaven on earth. So they have their resurrected bodies, but they're back on earth. And again, I'm just digging into this because I think it's interesting and it's good to think about. I don't necessarily think these are salvation issues. But everyone else, all of us, will get resurrected for the new heavens and the new earth. We skip over this time period. But these guys get their resurrected bodies now. And think about that. That's like having a 2022 car 
with lane keep assist and satellite radio and leather and seats and airbags. Back in 1902, when everyone else is driving around in the Model T, putt-putting around, right? These people have these fancy bodies, these heavenly bodies, while everyone else on Earth is kind of still putting around in the body of dirt. And what would that look like? Talk about a superhero. You talk about uh, someone who's never going to die again. You, there's still death. There's still death that happens to some degree, at least at the end of a thousand years, whether it happens in the thousand years or not. I, you know, it's kind of up for debate, I guess. Or maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand it. But these folks are never going to die again. They've got their eternal body and they get to hang out on earth for a thousand years and reign uh, with Jesus in that time. You know, like someone talks about it's a systems upgrade, uh, but it's in the degraded universe, right? You've got your fancy computer, but it's 1962. And over these, the second death has no power, that there's another death coming, that there's that death at the end of this time coming, and they have no power. They're going to go right through it. So it's showing that these people are not just resurrected back to their earthly bodies like Lazarus, but they are resurrected to their heavenly bodies before the second resurrection. So again, will folks during this thousand-year reign die? I don't know. We're going to see at the end. But these people are going to be seen, I believe, with proper authority. People are going to see that, wow, these people are like Jesus. They're, just not, they're not just Christians and good people and moral and like the Bible and nerdy and weird and don't do the things we'd like to do. But they're eternal. They have heavenly authority. They have a heavenly body. They've been resurrected completely to a new body. And they sit on these thrones and judge. Uh, I just want to see if I talk about it later before I skip over it. No, nope, I talk about it there. But how many people are left? Again, if we're going to consider this thousand-year time period uh, quickly, you know, World War II deaths. Seventy-two and a half million people died in World War II. Some, some estimates say four times the number of World War I. Well, in Earth... If there's 7 billion people at the time of the rapture, which there's probably going to be more, maybe, maybe not, after the rapture, if one out of seven are taking them, you know, we can't really judge because we don't know how many Christians there are, but at least we know that a lot of children are going to go. If that leaves around 6.3 billion left, right? So a billion people disappear. Then the horse judgment comes. Another 25% of the earth's population goes. That's 4.7 billion left. And then more angels released. There's only 3.1 billion left. Well, if that's, if that's the figure and that's a loose figure, by the end of the tribulation, you know, consider there's also other judgments. There's tribulation saints being martyred, um, just dying from famine, death, and disease. That leaves only one out of two people left on earth from today. That's like the Great Reset's dream. They want even less than that. And I think there probably will be even less than one out of two left. I have to wonder if there's only going to be like a quarter of the people left or a seventh of the people left. I don't know. But if we look throughout all of history, just to touch on that chart, a thousand years ago, there was only half a billion people. Even in 1800, there was only, uh, if I'm reading this right, one billion in 1930, 2 billion. In 1960, 3 billion. In 74, 4 billion. And uh, 2024, estimate 8 billion. You know, these things vary, right? We've killed so many people through wars. How many people would have happened from World War II, from abortion, from other things? 
But from all of history, there weren't that many people on the earth. And I see why people are afraid of overpopulation. But trust me, God's not worried about overpopulation. You know, again, have you driven through Kansas or even Montana? But there's been, and I want to touch on this, there's been 6,000 years of history. Again, if we go back and we look at the actual history of the earth, we look at what the Bible says about time, there's been roughly 6,000 years that have happened. And there's 1,000 years of Christ's reign. Well, to me, what does that remind, remind you of? What does it remind me of? Six days in a week, and the seventh you shall rest. 6,000 years of history of God working. Six days. The 1,600 years of the flood, the 2,400 to the cross, the 2,000 till today. 6,000 years. And then the 1,000 years of God resting from his work. He's ruling and reigning on earth. What does he have to do? Everyone knows he's there. No one needs to come to salvation during that time. Righteousness is enforced. There's no need to quelch wickedness. Satan is bound. God's resting in a kingdom on earth on that seventh day, I believe. Isaiah 11, 4 through 8. Um, again, I know we're getting late through time here. It talks about the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leper lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion. Remember my mom always teaching me when I was a kid that Things are going to be different during his reign, when he reigns during that restful reign. That this destroyed earth is going to be reigned over. Uh, It's going to be a different ecosystem in some sense from now, based on all the destruction that's happened. I'm sure God will restore it in some sense. It's not going to be like Eden. Eden is long gone. But we have the Eden, and then we had post-Eden in the fallen world. And then the flood happened, which changed the world again. And then the post-flood world. And then the tribulation, which changed the world again. And now post-trib. And then we'll have new heavens and new earth. But he rules and reigns during this time. That this time is going to be different than any other in history. Will it be warmer? Will it be bombier? There's going to be less people at the start, like we talked about in agrarian society, perhaps. But what I like about these witnesses, who these martyrs, who have thrones on earth, who rule and reign for a thousand years like governors around the whole world. It's God's kingdom. And Satan, as we see in the rest of the scripture, tries to copy that. He's got his little prince of Persia and his little rulers and princes and powers of the air trying to control the earth and enforce wickedness and make sure wickedness happens and we fight against that as believers. But God's like, no, you know, God's system, it works. It's flawless for a thousand years. But again, it's just something to think about. Just something to think about. You know, this is an interesting time period and it's exciting to look at. And let's go on and let's close out in 7 through 10. It says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They traveled the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, that comfort we were looking for before, that why God, why, is now being answered here at the end of the thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, and just real quick to think about that, think of all that's happened in the past thousand years. We have the Crusades, the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, the New World was quote-unquote discovered, Chinese dynasties, African slave trade, world wars, globalism, gunpowder, industrial revolution, cars, airplanes, space travel, computers, communism, bubonic plague, Spanish plague, measles, penicillin. All the things that have happened in just a thousand years under man's reign, under 
Satan's reign in a sense. Again, imagine all the things that are going to happen under Christ's reign. And it's going to be a time of proving to earth how good it will be to live under his rules, his ways, his authority. Will people be born? I'm sure because the sand of the sea is mentioned at the end. There's people who hadn't taken the mark and people who hadn't become believers. And there's people who have like somehow been allied to the beast and went along with his plans but didn't take the mark and yet didn't choose Jesus are going to be alive during this time because they didn't go to fight. They weren't obliterated. There's still people on earth to be ruled at the end of the tribulation. But like we said, it's probably not a lot. But God brings the nation under his rule. And again, it's not a forced heart change, but it's a forced life change to these people for these thousand years uh, to show them, uh, you know, uh, maybe what they'd forgotten. You know, that they've forgotten how bad it was before Jesus was on earth. They've, they've multiplied, people have filled the earth, right? The earth is covered again. Maybe it's not packed inhumanely, but it's a perfect society in a, in a world subdued by God, just like Adam and Eve was intended for them. Uh, but how long does it take Satan to go out and deceive the nations? Again, we're not told. Just said he's loosed and he goes around to the four corners of the world and they're given a choice. They're given a choice now. That seal is loose from Satan in a sense. That seal is loose from them to where now they, there's not enforced righteousness. Now they have this final choice again. Is it a week? Is it a day? Is it a couple of years? Whatever it is, it's a short season. And it's not as long as a thousand years. It's not as long as 6,000 years. It's quick. Is it, you know, mass formation psychosis? For time, I won't get into it, but that's an interesting component of things going on in our world today. But Satan gathers these people for battle. I don't know how you go and you hang out with Jesus forever. Like I said last time, how you didn't fall in love with him for that thousand years. And now Satan comes around and you go, okay, let's go fight him. With what weapons? There are no tank factories. There are no uh, gun ranges. There are no swordsmiths. There's nothing during this time because it wasn't needed. Because righteousness was enforced by God and his saints. So man, as Satan is hell-bent on deceiving people to use them to overthrow God. Remember how blind he is. He lost last time in an instant. And he's loose again. The first thing he does is go, oh, all right, let me go gather everyone up. And people go, oh, all right, let me go along with him. Don't they remember? Isn't it obvious? It says the number is like the sand of the sea, and that shows us that the population does explode over these thousand years. That not everyone will follow God, and in fact, an innumerable number is going to still go with Satan after these thousand years. Because remember, at least their parents, if not them, didn't before the trib. They didn't become believers during our time. They didn't become believers during Satan's time in the seven years. And they still did it. Because God can't force a heart change. He still lets their hearts go the way they want. And I think that should speak to us, that apart from God's Spirit, you and I too would immediately revert back to the flesh and heart. Just remember, God's Spirit is not on the earth this time. In a sense, it's a different period. But they surround Jerusalem. And again, Jerusalem has been the center of attention on earth for all of history. And I have to wonder, just as a side note, as a side weird speculation, is the Garden of Eden somehow tied to that space-time of Jerusalem? I don't know. But they surround them. And what happens? Does Jesus get on his horse again? You know, does he whistle like Gandalf and Return of the King and gets on his horse and it goes off the battle? No. Fire comes down from heaven and devours everybody who's attacking them. 
quickly again. No contest. No earthly weapons needed. Not even the word of God needed, but fire from heaven. Right away. And what happens? Well, this time the devil is cast into the lake of fire. If there is a sign outside the lake of fire, it would say lake of fire, population three. Antichrist, the beast, and now Satan. And what happens? They're going to be tormented day and night forever. They don't, he doesn't need to stand before God. His judgment is clear and his end is clear. And faith, uh, sorry, fire devoured the rest. And so that there is still death in this period, at least at the end. And next time we're going to see the great white throne judgment, the second resurrection. But I have to ask as we close here, and thanks for going along with me. Does death have any power over you, believer? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Are you fulfilling your purpose on earth that God has set aside for you from before the foundation? And if not, what prevents you from doing what God has called you to do? If God's called you to do it, what voice is it that tells you not to do it? Yesterday, we went outside and played bow and arrow. Jacob was out there. Alicia was out there. And Alicia, at first, hope you don't mind, sweetheart, she said, oh, I can't do it. Jacob's older. I don't know. You know, I'm not going to be able to do it. I was like, honey, you're the one, you're the one telling yourself you can't do it. Let's not, don't say that. Don't tell yourself you can't do it. You haven't even done it. Let's do it. Let's try it. I'm sure you can do it. It'll be hard, but I'm sure you can do it. And we get out there. I help her hold the bow. She pulls the arrow back and teach her how to get her fingers on there. And she shoots and it sticks right into the hay bales. That she was telling herself, oh, I can't do it. And yet somehow dad ordained you should go shoot bow and arrow and that's the same with us who's the one who tells us most of all that we shouldn't be doing what god has called us to do? if god's told you to do it that's all there is to it right is it the fear of death right in first corinthians 15 again oh hades where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ just like those tribulation saints are given victory by god you can too. So if you're not doing anything for God today, ask him, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do today, tomorrow, and the rest of my life? So God, bless us and keep us. God, would you show us your way? Speak to us, we ask. Thank you for this truth that we can trust it, that the end is written, that it's sure that we can trust you no matter what anyone says. And God, when you tell us to do something, God, you're the one telling us. So why should we obey any other voice? So help us in that too, we ask. Thanks all for those who are listening. May they be strong and encouraged in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you no matter where you are. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until